Good morning. Yes, I was going to say, I'm really glad to be here this week specifically, as opposed to last week. Uh, Trip had joked with me a couple weeks ago and was like, hey, you want to trade? Uh, I'm doing Matthew 5, talking about plucking out eyes and anger. Uh, and I was like, nope, I'm good with transfiguration. That just works just great for me. Um, so whenever I read this passage, uh, I'm always struck with its cinematic quality. Uh, it's just There's just something about it that's like very dramatic and epic, and it strikes me as something like a scene out of a movie. Um, it may have something to do with the fact that I was a film studies major at an undergrad, and so I just tend to think of things that I read like a movie in my head. But I also just think that like there's something about the passage itself, like the voices from heaven, the glowing white figures. Um, it's just very epic, right? Uh, and there's one specific movie that always comes to mind when I read this scene. Uh, and I have a picture of it. Yes. Does anyone know what movie this is? Shout it out. Two Towers, yes. So, yeah, it's from The Two Towers, the second movie in the Lord of the Rings trilogy. Um, the glowing white figure that you can barely even see is the character Gandalf. And then the three uh, figures below him, um, this is going to reveal how nerdy I am, but that's Legolas, the elf, Aragorn, and Gimli. Um, and they are, uh, for those of you who aren't familiar with the story, I'm sorry, I'm going to ruin it for you a little bit, but that's kind of on you. It's been out for a long time in the books even before that, so... Gandalf is their leader of sorts, and at the end of the book, uh, the first book and the end of the first movie, he dies, sort of sacrificing himself uh, for his group of friends and the hobbits and some other people who aren't pictured here, um, and in order for them to be able to escape. And it's, uh, it's, the characters are very distraught afterwards because they've lost their beloved leader. And uh, his death is really upsetting to them, and so when he appears here, it's really shocking. And this is the beginning of the second movie. Um, and I remember seeing the scene in the theater when I saw it, like, back in college or whatever it came out. And everyone there, you know, was super excited, just like the characters. Everybody, like, clapped and shouted. And, like, even though they knew it was coming, they're all like, yeah. Um, so it's interesting because Gandalf here is, is both resurrecting, because he died at the end of the last film, but he's also transformed because he's no longer, and you can answer this too, he's no longer Gandalf the Grey, he becomes Gandalf the White. Exactly. So he's transformed. So I think about this scene every time I read about the transfiguration because you've got blinding white figures, you have uh, three close friends, a transformation of a very close friend. Um, and as you probably know, uh, for those of you who've read the books, Tolkien, the author, was a Catholic, so spiritual themes like come up a lot in these books. That's not like a news flash or anything like that. But I think he's kind of blending two big spiritual events here because you've got obviously a transfiguration, but you also have the resurrection as well. Um, but I don't think that Tolkien, you can take that down, unless you just want to gaze at it like this is our new icon uh, for the North Side. <laughs> uh, but it's not just Tolkien, I think, that connects these two events of the transfiguration and the resurrection. I think Matthew, the author of the passage for today, I think also is connecting these two events. Uh, for one, the next time we see a dazzling white figure in Matthew, um, it's not Jesus, but it's the angel of the Lord um, who's coming down like lightning and he's at the tomb of Jesus and he tells the two Marys there that Jesus has been raised from the dead and he's not there. Um, but the other connection to the resurrection comes from Jesus himself. He says it in this passage. So at the very last verse from our passage in verse nine, Jesus says what? He says, don't tell anyone about what you've just seen until the son of man has been raised from the dead, 
which is kind of interesting, right? Like Jesus always tells people not to say anything, but after really amazing things like that happen. But it is as if to suggest that there's some connection between these two events, right? Like something about the transfiguration, the the event they just witnessed won't fully make sense until the resurrection happens. You might even say that this, this event kind of gives us a glimpse of the resurrection. Like it's a glimpse of the future Jesus. But why? Like, it's kind of weird. Like this whole scene, as cool as it is, it's kind of like, you might be wondering like, why is this even happening? Like, what's the point of this? Because um, there's something about it, which is why it kind of strikes as almost like a movie scene. It's something spectacle about it, right? It's almost like Jesus is kind of showing off a little bit. And not in a bad way, but I think he kind of is. Like not in an arrogant or out of arrogance or pride or anything, but I think he is kind of showing off. But the point being to offer reassurance to the disciples because he knows what's about to come. He is about to make this journey to the cross. And so the scene is sort of a way of him offering reassurance to them. So if you remember um, the previous chapter, if you go back one chapter, Jesus is telling his disciples actually that he will suffer and die and be raised again in three days. Um, And I feel like I... I am so familiar with the story. I was raised a Christian. Um, so I rattle off things like Jesus foretells his death, burial, and resurrection like really quickly to the point where it becomes like there's like no meaning to it. So it's good for me to kind of slow down and think about the impact that those words would have had on the disciples upon hearing them because kind of like Gandalf and the fellowship, this was their beloved leader. And this would have been horrible news to hear, right? That he was going to die. Um, and then in the next breath, be told, but he will come back to life in three days. And that's, I mean, obviously that's just huge news, right? Um, and they've seen him do miraculous things. I mean, they've seen him walk on water. They've seen him turn water into wine, feed thousands of people from very small amounts of food. Like lots of amazing things have happened. And yet, you know, coming back to life, that's a big one. That's a big claim. Um, so they're getting this sort of sneak preview. I'm sorry, the movie puns are just, they're there. They're getting this sneak preview of this future Jesus. Um, and if that isn't enough, we have two figures show up at the mountain that Jesus takes them to. They have Elijah and Moses that show up. So, and your next question might be like, but why, so why these two? Like, I know I've, I've heard of them. You know, they're kind of they're kind of big characters in the Old Testament, one of them more so than the other. Uh, but why? Uh, well, for one, uh, these two characters you would have known, or they would, the disciples certainly would have known, they had encounters with God on a mountain, actually. Moses famously encounters uh, God in the burning bush on Mount Horeb, among other occasions. Elijah also encounters God on Mount Horeb. And if you remember that story, God comes not in the earthquake or in the fire or in the wind, but in the silence. Um, So this was very familiar territory to these two characters. And then furthermore, these were just very important figures in the Hebrew Bible because of what they represented. So of course, Moses represents the Ten Commandments, the law, right? And then Elijah is one of Israel's most important prophets. And if you remember, I think from last week, uh, Tripp talked about in Matthew 5, Jesus really wants to make clear that he came to fulfill both the law and the prophets, not to abolish them. Uh, So this was really important that these two particular characters show up. Uh, Furthermore, the Torah, interestingly enough, 
requires for two witnesses to be present um, to provide testimony to an event. So it was kind of like getting the, like, the two biggest figureheads from these two very significant sections of scripture to show up and be like, it's legit. Uh, so I think I was trying to give an illustration for this. And the best thing I came up with was, um, so if I were to invite my friends over and say, hey, I'm going to bake you like the best cake you've ever tasted. My friends would probably, I mean, they know me. They know I'm not like the best baker ever at all. I mean, I just don't do that. So they would show up and they'd probably be like, politely be like, all right, it'll be fine. But if they walked in and they saw like, Paul Hollywood and Prue Leith, like at my island, like sipping wine, they'd be like, okay, like she may know it. Okay, sorry, that's a great British baking show reference if you're not, those are the two judges, sorry. Uh, they, but if they were there, they'd be like, oh, this kind of adds a little air of like legitimacy to this. Like maybe she knows what she's doing. Um, so you've got Jesus uh, basking in the glory of the Father, glowing white shining like lightning. You've got these two huge figures from the Old Testament showing up, confirming like, hey, this is legit. And if that wasn't enough, we have a voice from heaven literally coming down from the clouds saying, yes, this is my son. I love him. Listen to him. And I, I think it's really funny because if you think about it in these three, like, these three uh, examples of how like, we're confirming this is really happening, like, it's just such a huge clue. Like, don't miss it. Like if you miss the other two clues, like this doesn't leave any doubt. Literally a voice from the sky telling you to listen to my son. So after Jesus' prediction of suffering, death, and resurrection, um, he puts on the show that for lack of a better word, just you know, screams his identity, confirms what he's been saying. And it concludes with this divine voice saying, listen to him. Because what he says is true, right? Uh, he will suffer and die, but he will be raised again. It's both terrible news and wonderful news at the same time. And it's a hint of what is to come. So I'm sure all of you have heard of uh, seasonal affective disorder or SAD, its acronym. Um, it's where you, you know, you, you, people tend to get depressed um, during the winter months because there's like less light during that time of year. I don't know if like I... I like technically, I don't want to like assume if someone really has it that I don't want to say that I have it technically, but I do know that like this time of year in particular, I like find myself like just being like, oh, I have no energy. I'm so down. Why am I so down? There's no reason to be down. Oh, it's because it's been gray and rainy for like three weeks straight and I haven't seen the sun. Um, But because we live in Georgia, right? Like we have this kind of, you know, crappy winter weather, but it gets punctuated by these like faux spring days, right? Where like all of a sudden out of nowhere, it feels like it's May and it's 70 and the sun is shining and it's amazing. The daffodils come up because they don't know what's going on. They're all confused. Um, and everybody just like, I live close to Piedmont Park. Everybody seems to go to Piedmont Park and it's just like, yes, soak it up. Um, and then all of a sudden my mood changes. I'm like, yes, okay. I'm not depressed. It was just the weather. Um, and it's great in the moment because obviously it's just wonderful to experience that. But it also is great because it's a reminder, right? It's a reminder that like, oh, right. Like I don't live in Seattle. Like the gray will eventually go away and the sun will come out. It'll be hot again before we know it. But it's not gonna last forever, right? And that just does wonders for me, just getting that that little glimmer of hope. Um, C.S. Lewis gets at this concept really well in uh, Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. So if you remember from that story, Narnia is under uh, the spell of the White Witch, where she makes it always winter, never Christmas. Uh, 
So as, but as, as the book goes on, her power starts to weaken, right? As the character Aslan's power gets stronger and stronger, the winter starts to melt. All the signs of winter start to like lose their grasp and little hints of spring start to show up. And this uh, fills the character Edmund, who is still under the, he's still in capture, uh, captured by the White Witch. This fills him with hope as he starts to notice it. And Lewis writes, and I think it just captures this really well. He says, unless you have looked at a world of snow as long as Edmund had been looking at it, you will hardly be able to imagine what a relief those green patches were after the endless white. And that's how I feel um, with this gray weather, seeing these daffodils. But we need that, that hint, that reassurance. Um, just like Jesus knew, the disciples needed that because they, he knew the difficult journey that they had ahead of them. Uh, this passage in particular is really fitting for where we are in the liturgical calendar. So we've reached the end of the season of Epiphany, which we've been in since about the middle of January. Uh, And Epiphany is the season where we think about the glory of the incarnation, the revelation of God in the person of Jesus. And that's why we've been uh, studying Matthew and uh, thinking about Jesus and what he taught the the disciples. Uh, And here in this passage, we get the culmination in this transfiguration scene. So it's a theophany, which theophany is related to the word epiphany. You can hear the, the similarity there. Epiphany just means appearance of, and then theophany just means appearance of God. So this scene is displaying Jesus in all his divinity, all his glory, and all his holiness. And it's kind of like the grand finale of epiphany, right? It's kind of a perfect conclusion to this season. But starting on this Wednesday, this Wednesday is Ash Wednesday, as we've been talking about, we make a big pivot in the church calendar. So our journey into Lent begins, and it's this 40-day period leading up to the season of Easter. Uh, If you've uh, participated in Lent before, you know that Lent is not an easy season, and it's not meant to be. Um, It's a season where we're meant to let go of all that distracts us uh, from the truth, which, to put quite simply, um, is that we need Jesus, right? So we take on spiritual practices such as confession and repentance and fasting um, for 40 days in order to remind ourselves of our dependence on God. And if you've participated in this, you know, if you engage with it earnestly, it's it's a really, it's quite a vulnerable time, right? Um, and this is why traditionally people like Jesus and the desert fathers and mothers and even the disciples in this passage, uh, during these seasons, they remove themselves to remote vulnerable places such as desert or mountains, because if you've ever done this, you know, the truth sort of tends to come into clearer focus when you're not in those places of comfort and familiarity, right? Uh, I went on a trip last summer with a group of women. Um, we went to Colorado for a week, and we backpacked in, uh, I always want to say the outback. It's not the outback. <laughs> the backcountry of Colorado. And uh, we camped, and uh, we did all sorts of things. We were definitely out of our comfort zone. It was quite cold. It rained. And um, I mean, we did things like, you know, biffing, if you know what that is, bathrooming on the forest floor. Yeah, that's fun. And um, getting up at 2 a.m. to hike a 14,000-foot mountain when we didn't know we were going to be doing that. And our guys were like, all right, let's go. We're doing this. So we were, we definitely saw each other at our worst. I mean, I didn't even know these women all that well. So we got 
real deep, real fast. And it was both horrible and wonderful at the same time um, because when we had conversations, I mean, they were like, it. we clicked immediately because we had experienced the worst together already. Um, and things like that, just like if you, you know, if you just met like in somebody's home or like, you know, a classroom or something, you just can't get, you can't reach those places as easily, right? Um, there's something about being removed to the wilderness that just makes that possible. Uh, so we take... We take 40 days during Lent uh, to remove those comforts, all that familiarity, because just thinking about it for an hour on Good Friday, just it just doesn't cut it. Um, I've done that a few times in the season where all I've done is just attended a Good Friday service, and it just doesn't have the same effect. Um, it's kind of like when the power goes out on your house for a while, and like you know, because like George, you've called Georgia Power, and they're like, it's going to be like eight to twelve hours, and you're like, all right, just try to do the best I can and go about my day. But even though you know that the power is out, you still find yourself walking into every room in the house and like flipping the light switch on, and you're like, oh right, the power's out. And then you know, a couple minutes later, you try to plug in your phone, and you're like, oh right, the power's out. Uh, you know the power's out, of course, but you don't really. Feel Feel it until it keeps preventing you from doing what you're doing, right? Like what you want to do. And I feel like that's how Lent is. Uh, every time that we reach for those distractions, sort of our go-tos um, for when we're bored or worried or hungry or lonely, uh, we remember, oh, right, like this is not, this isn't available to me right now. I need to reach for Jesus instead because Jesus is what sustains me. So to go back to go back to the text, um, many of you, like I found, like myself, found Peter's response a little bit odd, right? Uh, he says, "I want to make three dwellings, if you want, for you, Jesus, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah." So interestingly, Peter's kind of odd response uh, is is connected to a holiday in the Jewish tradition that I think also, uh, like Lent focuses on vulnerability and dependence on God. So the word for dwellings uh, that Peter uses is the same word. It's also tabernacles. And in Hebrew, it's Sukkot. Uh, And if you are familiar with this, Sukkot is the festival of tabernacles or the festival of booths that is celebrated in the Jewish tradition still today. Um, And tabernacles represented the divine presence um, in that time where the Israelites came out of Egypt and had their journey through the wilderness into the promised land. Um, And so Peter was wanting to make a display of divine presence, right? Because he just just saw Jesus in all his glory. Uh, So today, Jews still celebrate Sukkot, uh, and they make these little makeshift uh, dwellings. And they have a roof on them. You may have seen them around town um, in Jewish communities but they have got three walls and a roof. So they're very like open air dwellings. They're very vulnerable, very exposed to the elements. And uh, practicing uh, observant Jews, they will live in there for a week, um, not 40 days. They'll live in there for a week and like take their meals and sleep there. Um, And yeah, it's a very vulnerable time, but God instituted this festival in the book of Leviticus and Numbers. And he says, live in booths for seven days, All native-born Israelites are to live in booths, so your descendants will know that I had the Israelites live in booths when I brought them out of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. So he wants them to remember that even after they've entered the promised land and all their needs are met, they're not having to depend on manna and things like that, uh, 
that they still ultimately depend on God for their provision. It's like a visual reminder that we, as usual, have things backwards, right? Uh, So things that look flimsy, like these little Sukkot, these little huts, um, are actually trustworthy because God's providing all your needs. And the things that we believe are secure and certain, like our jobs and our marriages and our finances, they're not as certain as we think. Uh, And I think even though our practices are are different, although I think it would be really cool to to do this sometime and build a little tabernacle and live in it for a week to see what that's like. Uh, Even though our our practices are different, I think that our season of Lent serves the exact same purpose, right? Because we set aside intentionally certain comforts and familiar things to us, um, kind of like our security blankets in a way, so that we can be continually reminded that, oh, right, this is where my true hope comes from. So I think that even though Peter... Peter often gets a lot of flack for being kind of the idiot disciple, like always the wrong instinct, Peter. Like, just sit down, just don't, you don't have to do anything. I feel like I often hear that about this passage. Like, Peter, just you just needed to be quiet and listen. I actually think he has the right instinct here. I think he's right. I think it makes a lot of sense. He's saying, let's make a display of the presence of God. And notice that Jesus doesn't rebuke him. And Jesus is fine with rebuking Peter. He rebuked him in the last chapter. Um, So he could have, but he doesn't. And the voice from heaven does not rebuke him either. He does get interrupted by it though. Uh, And he says, the voice says, listen to him. And then the sky returns to normal. Um, Jesus' face stops glowing. And then he does something, he does and says things to the disciples that I think are really, really interesting. And you can sort of easily read pass them really quickly, but I think if you pause, it's really beautiful. So first he touches them and then he says, get up and don't be afraid. And I think these details are just very important. So the Greek verb here uh, for get up is agero. And it's one of the first verbs I learned in Greek, uh, in Greek and seminary, because you hear it a lot, comes up a lot in the New Testament. People are always arising and getting up. And in fact, Jesus himself uses this exact same verb in the previous chapter when he talks about uh, his, when he foretells his death and resurrection. He says um, he will suffer, die, and agarathenai, he'll be raised in three days. So I just think this is really beautiful, right? Uh, his, in his transfiguration, Jesus is giving, he pulls back the curtain for the disciples and he shows him his truest self, right? They're probably seeing him for who he really is for the very first time, um, the sneak preview of the resurrection. But he's also giving them, making an invitation to the disciples themselves to their own transfiguration of sorts, their own transformation. So he touches them, which in the book of Matthew is always a sign of healing. When Jesus touches people, it's they're healed. And he comforts them, don't be afraid, and he reassures them um, Because when we see Jesus for who he really is, it's both terrifying and comforting, right? I mean, I hate to use another C.S. Lewis illustration, but it's just so perfect. I've already used one. I'm at my max now, but at the risk of doing that, it's that classic description of Aslan, right? He's good, but he's not safe. And that's exactly what it is when we see Jesus for who he really is. But then he says, get up, arise, just like he does. Get up because you've got work to do. And earlier we talked about how the transfiguration and the resurrection were connected because Jesus himself says, don't tell anyone about what they've seen until the son of man has been raised. Uh, 
like something about this just won't make sense until the resurrection happens. But interestingly, once the resurrection does happen, we leap to the end of Matthew, Matthew 28, the great commission, right? Jesus says the opposite. He says, all right, it's go time. Tell everybody, go make disciples everywhere. Uh, And I think in part, the reason why Jesus ignores very politely Peter's very well-intentioned offer to make temporary tabernacles, uh, these temporary dwelling places of the divine, is because he knew that shortly they would be utterly unnecessary. Uh, He and the disciples and all the followers of, of Jesus would be themselves the tabernacles, right? Uh, They would be the temples of the Holy Spirit, like Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians. In fact, in 2 Corinthians, uh, Paul uses that tabernacle language in the book of Leviticus. He says, we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will live in them and walk among them. It's not that Jesus thinks that Peter's instinct is wrong. It's just that after the resurrection, it would all come together. Like you don't need to build a booth because you're going to be a booth, right? So in closing, um, we've talked a lot about Lent and I kind of want to leave on this note because next time we gather together on Sunday, it will be already, Lent will already be in full swing. Uh, So as we enter the season of Lent, I would urge you to start preparing your hearts for it. So do, do as the voice from heaven says, listen to Jesus, um, Henry Nouwen says that Lent is the most important time of year to nurture our inner life. And this can be really hard for us, for many of us, especially those of us, I think, who are more extroverted, like me. Um, it's not something natural to my personality uh, to be still and to listen. It's, it takes training, though, right? Um, just because it doesn't come naturally doesn't mean it's not, well, that's just not me. It's like, it's a skill that you have to learn. Uh, and I really love what Nouwen talks about. He says, when you first start trying uh trying to practice solitary prayer. It can be like a man living with an open house, like uh, living in a house with open doors who suddenly shuts them. And the visitors who are used to coming all the time, they start to pound at the door and they're wondering like, why are we not allowed to enter in? And he says, only when they realize they're not welcome do they gradually stop coming. So if, it, if it's a struggle for you at first, I would just urge you to lean into it. It just takes some time. And use Lent, use Lent to clear away those obstacles that uh, compete for our attention. Um, and if you're just new to all of this, and all of it seems very overwhelming, like I don't even know what Lent is. I, I think I'm supposed to be participating in this. I don't know. Um, and Wednesday's only like three days away. Like I am not ready. But you do feel that tug to like enter into this time I would just urge you to just start simple, right? Uh, Just start by simply participating in what's going on here at Trinity. There's lots of things going on. Um, This Tuesday, we're having uh, pancakes at different houses around uh, our church body. Uh, Ash Wednesday is the next night. Go to an Ash Wednesday service. Um, We're having a Lent study this starting in Sunday, but Trip mentioned sort of a shameless plug because I'm teaching it, but there's lots going on. And if you don't know what to do, just start simple, start there. Uh, start creating what uh, Alexander Schmemann describes in his book, uh, Great Lent, which is a great book to read if you're interested to learn more about it. Um, but start creating what he describes as the Lenten climate. Um, it's an invitation to transformation. So 
just like Jesus came into focus in the transfiguration for the disciples uh, for the first time, if we lean in and we listen to Jesus, we can recapture our truest purpose. Um, I wanna finish with this last quote from that same book from Great Lent because I think it is a good um, way to kind of close out this discussion about Lent. But uh, Shmeyman writes, and thus of Lent is, as we have said from the very beginning, the recovery by man of his faith. It is also his recovery of life, of its divine meaning, of its sacred depth. It is by abstaining from food that we rediscover its sweetness and learn again how to receive it from God with joy and gratitude. It is by slowing down on music and entertainment, on conversation and superficial socializing that we rediscover the ultimate value of human relationships, human work, human art. And we rediscover all this because very simply, we rediscover God himself because we return to him and in him to all that which he gave us in his infinite love and mercy. Thank you so much for listening to today's sermon. My name is Trip Prince, and I'm the parish pastor here at Trinity on the north side. At Trinity, our mission is to be a people growing into Christ's likeness. You can learn more about Trinity and get plugged into the life of the church by visiting us online at atltrinity.org. God bless you and have a great week.